0: Section 3 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Ferris from Santa Maria, California. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1921 by G.K. Chesterton. Section 3 at the sign of the world's end street cries and arcady by g k chesterton i was recently walking in front of a row of rich respectable houses rather like tall tombs there was a sort of park railings in front of them and on the railings was a little notice which tempted the wrath of god by saying that hawkers and street criers were forbidden it certainly stimulated the wrath of men or at any rate of one man it is when i see such things in such streets much more than when I see the slums, that I feel we are ready for the revolution. Perhaps, after all, some of the people living in that street will live to see a revolution. They will live to hear some street cries then. The more innocent and beautiful sort of street cries, which these snobs were so anxious to shut their ears, are perhaps the last faint echoes of merry England nothing could be more civilized in the highest sense than introducing a touch of rhythm and melody into the advertisement of common wares the old musical advertisement was much more truly worthy of a cultured people than the coarser appeal of the new pictorial advertisement our fathers like poets bought and sold by means of songs and we like savages are reduced to signalling to each other by picture-writing the street cries that survive have doubtless degenerated like the streets we can form from such fragments only a very faint idea of the ancient custom and culture from which they come, but we know by independent historical evidence that they come from a remote period when a popular culture was rather specially a vocal and melodic culture, for in medieval opinion witnesses to the fact that Merry England was especially musical England. If even the modern rich were really merry, the solicitors and stockbrokers living in that street would certainly have their own street cries. I like to think of a banker publicly recommending his bank in a sort of ballad, and that every merchant wandering about is a minstrel. The lawyer should have a lyrical cry about law like the one about lavender, and a sort of ululation from the doctor announce his medicine as if it were milk. The Bolshevists are said to have Forced people like bankers to sell bootlaces. But I am a very moderate Bolshevist, and I should be content with forcing them to sing about bootlaces or even about banks. Yet, even in this fancy, we can see the fallacy, for such a song would be futile if it were forced. The little bankers who can sing and won't sing may be made to sing, but their song will hardly be of a hearty and rousing sort. And this train of idle reflection naturally led my mind back to the people who still occasionally sing, and even dance, such as the peasants in some of the southern countries. We have been accused of idealizing such peasants, but indeed there is a curious paradox in the current version of the ideal and the reality. The real prejudice against peasants is very like the real prejudice against street cries, it is an irritation at once against the ritual and the rude self-expression of poor people the vivacity of the southern village is faintly annoying because the village consists of street in which no mere motive could forbid street cries just as it is the coercionist and not the nationalist who believes in a stage irishman so it is the capitalist or collectivist and not the distributionist who believes in a stage peasant it is exactly the materialists who profess to find our ideal an impossibility, whose picture of the material facts is itself impossible. They represent us as romantically praising the peasant for being a happy Arcadian, but they themselves have actually blamed him for being a happy Arcadian. I do not mean merely that they have blamed him for being Arcadian, they have actually blamed him for being happy. They describe us as describing him as if he were Titoris, perpetually lying idle under the shadow of a beech tree with scarcely the energy to pipe to a few dancing lambs but as a fact they themselves have only described him as lying idle under the beech tree but they have actually reviled him for his idleness up to a little time ago at least all our commercial culture referred for instance to the southern peasant the idle southern peasant now the mere phrase the idle peasant is very near a contradiction in terms it is as if we had habitually used the phrase the motionless acrobat it is as if every other newspaper writer had habitually mentioned the deaf and dumb elocutionist it is as if all our current conversation were full of blind sightseers earless eavesdroppers and legless dancers a peasant means a man who manages to make his own field pay by his own labor often an exceedingly difficult thing for any man to do and a perfect and impossible thing for a persistently lazy man to do there are infinite complexities of human immorality and they doubtless include the most extreme complexities of human inconsistency but it is almost as easy for a miser to be a drunkard or for a pirate to be a poltroon as for a true peasant to be a true idler yet we all know that the victorian literature and journalism were full of these fancy pictures of the smiling and sunburnt rascal of italy or Gascony lounging his life away between the sun and the shadow of his vine. How he came to have any vine, or how the vine came to grow on his particular plot of land, the Victorians did not inquire. The Victorians had never experimented in growing vines. In their rugged, strenuous northern fashion, they confined themselves to drinking wines. They drank their port after dinner and discussed the indolence of the Portuguese, with mighty muscular efforts the Victorian Vikings poured out the juice of the vine and drank it, laughing at the loitering and impotent dreamers who had done nothing but dig it, grow it, train it, tread it, ferment it, store it, and stack it in carts. I have a great deal of respect and sympathy for these Victorian visions. I am only pointing out that it was they who were the visionaries. It is we who are the realists.' peasant work and peasant wealth are two great realities there are all sorts of things connected with them that people may not like there are all sorts of things that i should not like but the realities are there whether we like them or not it is not we who imagine an arcadia and then call it utopia it is they who first imagine the arcadia and then actually abuse it for being as happy as an utopia they insist that there is no real peasant except the ideal peasant and then abuse him for being ideal now behind this mistake as behind many mistakes there is another idea that is not entirely mistaken these victorian critics did not really condemn the arcadian shepherds because there are no arcadian shepherds to condemn they were not really disgusted with the idleness of the southern peasants because the southern peasants are not idle but they were disgusted with something and something which produced on their minds something like a sincere impression of idleness there was something with which their capitalist conception of society was really unfamiliar and towards which it was really unfavourable it was part of that conception of life to have a certain contempt for foreign conceptions of life which prevented anything like a patient study of them they wished to express their vague impression in a short phrase and the shorthand of it was laziness it stood to them for something which they honestly felt to be horrible misshapen unnatural and almost obscene it was not laziness it was not even leisure it was liberty what really puzzled them was not that the peasant never worked but that he worked as they were accustomed to seeing the poet work or the politician work it was not that he never worked but rather in a sense that he never stopped working it was in truth the terrible fact that he was never out of work he had not to be harassed perpetually in order to get work as if it were a fugitive wild beast to be hunted on the mountains or to keep work like a ferocious wild beast to be kept and fed in a cage work was a tame creature and would come when it was whistled for at any time of the day or night and sometimes there seemed to be more whistling than working Work was a domesticated animal, and, like all domesticated things, was sometimes a nuisance. The man would often gratify the impulse to leave off working and go back to whistling, or possibly to singing. It is that sudden burst of song that really horrifies the critics from the commercial towns. It is that horrid human noise that can be swept from the streets but can never be swept from the small fields. A man may stop working to sing, or he may sing while he is working or his song may even grow more loud when his work is more lively but the very fact of having in his head another rhythm besides the rhythm of the wheel of work will inevitably involve changes and variations of pace pauses exaggerations and special effects on one day his labour may be like an epic on another he will attend to a few trifles like a few triolets. the eight-hour day of the socialists and the twelve-hour day of the capitalists will be equally meaningless to him no plutocrat can make him work and no bureaucrat can prevent him from working thus we find among peasants something which we never find among proletarians though the peasants may be more thrifty and the proletarians more pleasure-loving we find positive and creative crafts and imaginative institutions of their own invention not borrowed from anybody of that sort of popular culture the street cries are but stray echoes not now perhaps so much worth listening to in themselves the great houses are shut against them, and by this time the great houses may not lose very much. But I have a feeling their doors and windows would remain sealed if a blind beggar came singing down the road, telling in tremendous words of the slaughter by Scamander or the tomb of Hector the horse-tamer. End of section three. Recording by Matthew Ferris from Santa Maria, California.